Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. It's felt like a very long year and it's kind of hard to believe we're only just at the halfway point. And with a new spike in coronavirus cases here in Victoria, we're reminded that things are going to be a little bit tricky for a while yet. As well as changing our daily lives, there's also a sense that the pandemic might be changing our politics with the National Cabinet process, which has proved so fruitful in coordinating federal and state responses to the coronavirus, set to become permanent, replacing COAG as a forum for collective decision-making So what does this mean for Australia's democracy and the function of our politics going forward? Could this usher in a more productive process of federalism as we start to emerge from the COVID-19 crisis? To explore such questions, I have on the line journalist, author and one-eyed Tiger's tragic George Megalogenis. Great to have you back on the show, George. Thanks, Dylan. How are you? Very well, thanks. And, um, I mean, we've spoken to you periodically over the past six months about uh, how Australia's kind of responded to the coronavirus pandemic and, and what the kind of process of federalism looks like in this country. What's your sense of um, the National Cabinet process becoming a more permanent fixture of Australian politics? I think there's no choice uh We're in a recession now, and the recession will soon take over all uh, conversations. Uh, Whilst we're obviously got an outbreak, uh, sort of localised outbreaks in Victoria, this is phase two of dealing with the virus, and I think we're just in the process now of learning to live with it. But uh, as you sort of of scan the horizon, the next 6, 12 to 18 months in terms of politics and especially public policy, coping with the recession will uh, will be the bigger issue. And it's hard to imagine Scott Morrison having had sort of the sort of parallel universes of his sort of non-appearance during the black summer of uh, fires and the very, very uh, sort of central, almost unifying national role uh, through the phase one of the pandemic. For him to want to revert to a government of one or the federal government trying to run uh, Australia through uh, manage Australia through a recession. So imagine he'd be looking, he'd be looking to adapt uh, what he's learnt from uh, uh, phase one of the pandemic to hopefully uh, a more pro- co- constructive uh, sort of form of politics. I, I'm not trying to get uh, too far into Nirvana scenarios, but I just mm. think it's a more practical thing for them to manage a recession uh, through collaborative leadership with the states and territories than uh, to try and manage this thing on their own. And so how do you see this working, I guess, politically speaking? Because there was a period, particularly kind of at the beginning of the, the National Cabinet becoming a, um, you know, a, a means of addressing the, the pandemic and coordinating the state and federal responses, where essentially, um, you know, I'm sure behind closed doors, there were very robust discussions happening, but at least publicly, there was a sense that um, the Prime Minister and, and state and territory leaders were speaking kind of broadly from the same song, songbook. There's been 
some sort of tensions in more recent times. I mean, particularly if we go back a few weeks to, you know, Dan Tian's explosion on insiders about the Victorian government not reopening schools and some comments around um, kind of border closures and the like. But do you think that, uh, I guess, the politics will become more apparent in the public domain um, through the national cabinet process than perhaps we saw right at the beginning when there was kind of a, you know, essentially a Nirvana situation where there seemed to be constructive decision-making without reverting to um, political point scoring? Yeah, I think, look, the thing that, that they probably will argue about is the thing that they've all, always argued about, which is the roles and responsibilities between the federal and state governments. And so that's taxing and spending powers uh, at, at its sort of most basic level. The way the Federation works, obviously, um, Commonwealth collects more money than it spends, the states spend more money than they collect. The Commonwealth would probably like the states to assume a greater tax uh, a, a greater burden for collecting taxes and the, and the states would obviously prefer that the Commonwealth um, didn't poke its nose in as much uh, when, when states do spend money. So those arguments will probably uh, will probably have to be had. And uh, but the question in my mind is, does it, does it polarise uh, based on party or, or do you get these new alliances across parties, say Victoria and New South Wales, which have... Uh, respectively a Labor and a Conservative government. We start to see some of those um, uh, sort of practical state-based alliances breaking some of the political um, divides. Or does the Commonwealth in the end, especially as you get close to another election, does the Commonwealth see an advantage, a political advantage in playing uh, itself off against all the states? So that's, that's that, they're the practical policy, uh, politics questions, but the but underlying policy um, debates that will be sort of driving to consider these things sort of beyond party affiliation mm-hmm. is the interest of the two is the interest of the two tiers of government. Yeah, it's interesting because I suppose on some policy issues, I mean, if we look at energy, for example, the states and territories have moved faster than the Commonwealth to, um, you know, having a zero net emissions target by 2050, for example, while the the, uh, federal government has kind of dragged its feet. And we've seen um, Anthony Albanese come out just last week with what um, he sort of framed as, as a kind of bipartisan approach to energy policy with the coalition, with emissions reductions targets that sort of could be scaled up or down by the government of the day. Um, I mean, how do you see this playing out, I guess, in the context of the national cabinet process and, and the monthly meetings that will be held, given some of the, the leadership yeah. that states and territories have taken, and I guess as well in the context of a looming by-election in Eden Monaro coming up this weekend? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think uh, you, you point on energy is interesting because if you think about it at a, at a state level, uh, the voters that, dry, that decide elections in Victoria and New South Wales, they're more likely than not to be in Melbourne and Sydney, where the constituency for action on climate change is, is much stronger than it is in the regions. Queensland's the counterexample. Because Queensland is the state it's, of the mainland states is the, is the, is the most decentralised. So elections there get basically southeast Queensland versus the rest of Queensland. So there's an urban, there's an urban sort of regional um, star mode in Queensland at a state level, which doesn't exist, which doesn't apply in Victoria and New South Wales. Obviously, nationally, it's a different picture again. Mm. Nationally, WA and Queensland, the last two federal elections, have pulled ranked on on all the other states. 
and territories um, because the coalition majority is basically is basically uh, due to super majorities in both Queensland and WA. So you've got you've got at a state level uh, drivers for action on climate change which don't translate federally. So the question for Scott Morrison is: Does he let this thing? take its natural course and let the states drive this debate, uh, removing him from the, from the um, sort of, uh, you know, some of the minefield, isn't it, for him? When you think about his backbench and some of the, um, and some of the sort of more determined uh, members of the commentary class in, in, at News Limited mm-hmm. that think not only is climate change a hoax, but, um, you know, it's tantamount to thought crimes we even consider <laughs> a balanced policy in this area. So uh, I think it's, I think it's still tricky for, for for the prime minister because he'd like to take this issue off the table because he'd like to hold seats in Melbourne and Sydney at the next federal election. He doesn't win an election next time around just relying on Queensland and WA. A lot can go wrong everywhere else in this country, especially remember we're still going to be in a recession when the next election is held. So um, he's a political animal. He'd be weighing all these things. And it's interesting you mention Ed Monero, because Ed Monero is not necessarily the test case for what the national uh, uh, story will be in sort of 2022. But it is the sort of seat that in sort of normal times a government might even pinch, especially when a prime minister has sort of been on a sort of, uh, you know, on a roll since about, since about mid-March when, you know, when he sort of got the pandemic response uh, right. Uh, but it's an electorate that ravaged by bushfires, an electorate with disproportionately large share of public servants live there. Mm. Even though it's normally a regional electorate, it, it, it sort of behaves like a cosmopolitan seat in many parts of it. Uh, and and it's, it was sort of the epicentre of, of sort of the bad Scott Morrison, which was the, which the guy that didn't hold the hose, remember, in, yeah. um, in December, January. So, uh, look, all these, things, all these things are always in play um, in Australia, I've always, I, I, I think I've mentioned this to you, but I've always viewed climate change as, our, as a sort of as a massive Achilles heel for us in terms of that, not just in terms of our domestic and sort of domestic political and economic concerns, but in the way the rest of the world views us. Because the perception that we are, uh, uh, you, know, you know, sort of a smart ass, sort of um, lucky country. Um, basically trying to take a break at the expense of the rest of the world. This is the issue in which, and also obviously treatment of asylum seekers, Mm. but this especially is the issue where the rest of the world might one day just get tired of us and put the price on our head. Uh, I know that's the advice that's been going (laughs) under the table to every government since Howard's. Sooner or later, we have to move because the rest of the world might just get sick of us. Yeah, speaking with journalist and author George Megalogenis, all about, um, I guess, a number of issues in federal politics, but particularly framed around federalism and what kind of cooperation might exist between the federal, state and territory governments going forward. And it's interesting... Uh, to hear you mentioned this kind of bad Scott Morrison, that, you know, the person who was off in Hawaii at the start of the year amid the bushfire crisis and sort of didn't really, um, you know, have his hand on the levers of the government at a time when we really needed leadership. And there is kind of a, a question, I guess, around what type of, of leader he is, because there's some who suggest that he's very much a kind of pragmatist and isn't driven by ideology, but we see an, an occasional sort of gesture towards the, the culture wars, such as recently, um, you know, when the TG, 2G comments on Australia not having a history of slavery. I mean, he, he apologised for that, but 
when you're sort of you know speaking to that kind of audience, you can see those types of overtures to um, a particular segment, I guess, of the coalition's base that people such as Tony Abbott were sort of more willing um, to to reach out to um, throughout his prime ministership. Do you feel that there's a sense that that Scott Morrison um, kind of needs to decide, I guess, whether there's the sort of right-wingers and, and part of the Liberal National um, Coalition who would want perhaps him to be playing these kind of culture war, playing off the culture war issues more than he is at the moment and being that kind of pragmatist that plays more to the kind of, I guess, Sydney, Melbourne base, given, yep. as you've written about, that, um, you know, there'll be a new seat in Victoria as, as the population in Melbourne booms and there'll be more emphasis on winning those types of seats than necessarily the kind of regional Queensland vote. Yeah, I think that this this is and this is strange. It's been a dilemma for for the Conservatives since the since Keating was Prime Minister. Because the thing that was concerning the Liberals way back in the nineties was this idea that their middle class base was moving over to the Labor side. And at that point in the nineties, they didn't realise that there were a whole lot of workers, you know, you know, made redundant and and uh, and you know, guys without university degrees were going to be switching from Labor to the Coalition. I don't think at that point the Coalition were aware of how many more votes they were going to pick up and they were going to lose. But there's still been this sense all the way through the last two decades that the drift is is to the urban voter and to the cosmopolitan voter. And the Liberals have... I don't know if you remember now, Malcolm Turnbull kept saying you can only win an election in the centre, but he could only make that point as a, as a counterpoint to Abbott, who was trying mm. to, who had moved way too far to the right and was going to be a one-term prime minister if they'd let him contest the next election. Morrison, Morrison's an interesting one because he does, t- he does, at least in, in in the way he speaks, suggest he's much more conservative than Turnbull. Probably not as crazy as. As well, probably not as oh, crazy, probably the wrong word. Probably not as not as set in his ways as Abbott. Um, but then the question is, where is he flexible? So he seems to be flexible in the places you would least expect him to be flexible if you thought he was conservative. So at the moment, he still wants to run a big immigration program. I mean, it's not practically possible while the borders are closed, but. He's not taking the advantage, the opportunity of the pandemic to slash uh, the, the target for permanent settlers. So why, does he, why has he done that? Um, partly because he's been convinced of the need uh, to run a big migration program. Mm. And he sort of figured this out while he was treasurer. And he can be quite stubborn once he gets on the right side of the policy debate. So remember, years ago, he was, he, was, he was at the other end of this spectrum wanting to, to cut the rate in half, yeah. to cut the intake in half. So he can, once he makes up his mind uh, to be a pragmatist, he can hold that position. He doesn't, he doesn't swing back and forth once he's made up his mind. But the other side of that is where he's stubborn, and he's stubborn on things like statues. He's stubborn on things like Captain Cook. He takes it personally mm. when, people love, when people mention these issues. And so the big question mark for me is how he handles a, uh, an issue like um, recognition. So the Uluru statement is, you know, is the, is the greatest gift Indigenous Australians will ever give to white politicians, which is they, they've developed a consensus, they've given the three steps for how to do it, um, and they're not asking much of white Australians. 
but it's quite a profound change that they're, that they're seeking, but they're not actually asking white Australians to give up much. Now, if, if, he's able to, if he's able to see past his sort of cook obsession uh, and, and, and get something going on all the way before the next election, then you could then you could probably um, you could probably rate him as more of a pragmatist with you know slight visionary bent. If he doesn't want to do that, if he's going to continue to argue the toss on um, on settlement, uh, then you know that he's he that, that part of him hasn't um, hasn't evolved. Uh, now, it, you know it sounds like it sounds like I'm not sure, and that is because I'm definitely not sure. I'm just not sure of him. I still don't have a, a decent read of him. Normally, at this stage in a prime ministership, I mean, I'm, I don't want to pretend to be experienced, but I, I have been watching these. I think you're pretty uh, experienced. Boss <laughs> Julia Gillard for more than three decades. Uh, and usually you get a good read on them after a couple of years in the, in the office because uh, they don't get trained for these sorts of jobs, but within the first two years of having it, uh, you get a fair idea of what sort of prime minister they'll be. And I, I'm still not sure between the good and the bad Scott Morrison where this guy will ultimately land. He'd probably take this very personally if he heard it, but... <laughs> Uh, I mean, to his, um, you know, one one thing I'll give him the benefit of the doubt on: uh, no one would want to be governing in the times he's governing. Mm. You wouldn't want to be coming from bushfire to pandemic to the to the deepest recession, well, this pandemic and global pandemic in a hundred years, to the deepest recession since the 1930s. Plus, you know, major trading partners gone nuts. The Chinese have just suddenly decided that they could yell at the rest of the world, and apparently that's going to work for them. And of course, we know that um, Donald Trump is killing his country in real time. So this is not a good time for the Australian Prime Minister, I wouldn't have thought. Not at all. And I mean, there's so many issues that um, you know will be interesting to watch with what you know what happens, for example, to JobKeeper and JobSeeker and the university yeah. sector, with um, you know those recent announcements with the huge increase to particular courses and um, the sort of attempts to reopen Australia to international students as well. I mean, there's a lot of issues yeah. here that, that could potentially have, um, you know, significant Im- implications, not just for the direction that the country takes, but also for the types of um, decisions that, that Morrison makes in terms of the type of leader he wants to be, I guess, based on how those things are received. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So just to, you sort of mentioned uh, a, a couple of other issues. In, in terms of the tribalism, uh, and I've seen... And I know I've got a vested interest in this because I work from time to time for the ABC, but I see the way that they're arguing the toss on the ABC cuts uh, tells you that they they want to punish the ABC, mm. but part of them recognises the rest of the country think that this is just a crazy thing to do in a recession. So you, did you notice last week the argument the argument was there have actually been no cuts? And then and almost in the same breath, he and his ministers said, oh, but by the way, the rest of the media is facing cuts and Qantas is having to lay off staff, so why should they be exempt? So I couldn't actually follow that <laughs> argument. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, it, you have to let people go because everybody else is getting the sack. Well, Economics 101 says that the last thing a government should do in a recession is to add to the burden of unemployment. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, Australians still remain very much attached to the ABC as well. I mean, um, it, you know, plays a huge role in, in regional areas in particular, but it remains, you know, the most trusted news source as well. So I wonder how that um, kind of strategy plays for the, for the voting public as well. Well, again, we'll, we'll, we'll know a lot more 
we'll know a lot more Saturday night. So the thing, even though a lot of the votes are already in and even the narrow because they've been mailed in, uh, the, the sort of pre-polling is much, much, uh, a long way above the same, uh, the, the rate of pre-polling at the last election. And there's, there's a number of reasons why you wouldn't want to be turning up on the day, apart mm. from the pandemic. The other thing is these communities still haven't um, haven't even begun the rebuild from uh, from the bushfires. But if there's a swing, and this is hypothetical, but if there's a swing to Labor, you can guarantee one of the first things the government will do will try and walk back the ABC um, argument. I don't know how they pull themselves out with, 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 with uh, losing face, but they'd want to be dialing that thing down because that area is prime ABC territory. In fact, before any other loyalties, uh, and I know that area quite well, um, they are ABC listeners. Yeah, so, so that part of it, that part of it, I'd imagine um, we'll know pretty quickly. The other one, and you mentioned JobKeeper. The, the, the tricky thing for them about JobKeeper is they know this is going to cost a lot of money. But the question is, uh, any early withdrawal or something of, uh, of an intervention that that big, because it's close to ten percent of GDP. If you took ten, if, even, even if you took half of it out, if you took five percent of GDP out of the out of um, out stimulus out of the economy. The economy doesn't collapse, doesn't 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 go backwards by five. It it um, it accelerates. Yeah. Because the, because there's a, there's a knock on from confidence. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, as I said, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm trying I'm I'm trying to put myself in their shoes. It's a terrible time to be governing. I guess one I guess one of my takeouts on this at the moment is I'm not sure temperamentally they're suited to this to governing in this cycle. Remember, in the end, they're a conservative government, so they think governments should be smaller, not bigger. Uh, and, you know, they're prone to culture wars, so they'll always do a drive-by on institutions and individuals that, 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 that are not like them. So that's the, that's, that's the dilemma we've got at the moment as a country. Absolutely, and, and you can be sure that all those issues will um, rise again before too long. Um, it's, it's always so great to have you on the station, George, to help us make sense of this strange reality we're living in and, um, and take care. I hope you're not too down by the Tigers' recent performances, but um, <laughs> no, <sorry>. <laughs> we'll <laughs> every, see how they go. Mate, every, every premiership year, is, there's always been something like this. <laughs> this time around, the, the, the competition is so... So so uh, so random because of because of the lockdown and the hubs and all the other stuff and the rule changes and the shortened quarters and stuff. Look, the Gold Coast might win it this year. Yeah, well, maybe that's a blueprint for a successful government is whatever the Gold Coast has done in the in the, in the, in the lockdown. <laughs> it may well decide the next election anyway. The Gold Coast. <laughs> um, thanks so much, George, and we'll um, catch you again soon. Thanks again, Dylan. It's a pleasure. All right, cheers. See ya. George Megalogenis, their journalist and author, helping us make sense of federal politics. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Last month, the skyline of the Latrobe Valley changed forever when the eight chimneys of the Hazelwood coal-fired power station were dramatically demolished. The station had been closed since 2017 after more than 50 years of operation. Over that time, it was a key source of Victoria's energy and played a big role in the social and economic makeup of the town of Morwell and surrounding areas. As one of, if not the dirtiest power stations in Australia, it was also responsible for pumping huge amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. 
atmosphere. And while this made Hazelwood an obvious target in, in campaigns to reduce Australia's reliance on fossil fuels, it was a massive prolonged fire in the open-cut coal mine in 2014 that really laid bare its impact on the environment and public health, as the community literally choked through weeks of toxic smoke and ash raining down on the town. Tom Doig has kept a close eye on developments in the Latrobe Valley ever since the mine fire disaster began and has put together a beautifully written book that tells the story of Hazelwood through the eyes of those who knew it best. The book is simply called Hazelwood. It's out through Penguin. And to chat all about it, Tom joins me on the line. Great to have you back on the show, Tom. Hi, Dylan. Thanks so much for having me again. And so how did you feel as you um, watched from afar, I imagine, the um, huge yes. Hazelwood stacks tumble just a few weeks ago? Oh, gosh, it was such an odd moment, Dylan. I mean, I'm actually uh, living in regional New Zealand at the moment um, because my partner, Laura, has a job over here. So, so we were literally um, uh, at the beach in New Zealand watching a live stream of, of the stacks come down. And it was... It was weird. It was, I mean, clearly it was a bit dramatic and spectacular because the stacks are about 130 metres tall and they were dynamited on, on sort of three-second intervals. So they, they came down a little bit like dominoes. Yeah. Um, so it was both dramatic and, oh, you know, kind of sad and weird. Um, there were definitely a lot of people in the Latrobe Valley who wanted to chimneys preserved as a kind of... Uh, example of industrial heritage. And, you know, I could see arguments for that. Um, the problem is that they're really old and falling apart, and so it would have cost literally hundreds of millions of dollars to keep the keep the plant sort of upright. Um, so yeah, it was weird and bittersweet to see um, what some locals would call the, the Eiffel Tower of Morwell <laughs> um, descend into, into ashes. And not just ashes, but asbestos, right? Like, they're full of asbestos. So that was, and I think I think that was, you know, checked for, for um, risk, and, you know, the, the didn't travel too far, but that was another kind of strange part. It's going, wow, the dramatic clouds of carcinogenic dust. Yeah. Combination of coal dust and asbestos. That's right, which is yeah, not good for anyone. But, um, I mean, you mm. use the word bittersweet, and that's, uh, I think, a really apt term uh, for, you know, how I would imagine the community's response having read your book, because Hazelwood, mm. you know, has been such an icon of the area um, down there for so long, once employing mm-hmm. a huge amount of people, particularly prior to privatisation, and that's a story you tell mm-hmm. in the book as well. It's a big part of the region's identity. When you arrived in mm. the Trobe Valley to begin telling this story, what was your kind yes. of sense of the nature of people's relationship to the Hazelwood mine and power station? Oh, God, that's such a good and, and complicated question, <laughs> Dylan. Um, look, I think, I think there's a few things there. I mean, I think that um, there is a very strong and uh, in some ways cohesive community that uh, grew up, literally lived and died as... as Hazelwood workers or family members of workers, and that you know dates back from the the fifties and sixties when the mine and the power station were being dug. And so the people who are sort of third generation power station workers or third generation power station wives, um, lots of whom were very still actually. I, I went down for the first time in twenty fourteen when the fires happened, um, but people were still very scarred and traumatised about the the way privatisation was handled in mm. the nineties, and and we're really talking about it like a fresh wound, you know? Like, they were like, the fire's terrible, the smoke's awful, but also privatisation has, has stuffed us, you know? And that there was still a sense of resentment um, that was very fresh for, for those people um, and a sense that 
yes, the power station was still going, but it was employing a fraction of the people, and that sense of community cohesion had disappeared in the 90s. Um, there were all these, these amazing stories that were like something out of Pleasantville or one of those kind of, you know, utopian American movies from the 60s about mm. the good old days when um, the State Electricity Corporation would literally pay for Christmas parades through the streets of Morwell and give out presents to all the children in Morwell. You know, like that kind of level of um, uh, corporate benevolence. Um, but th those days were, were long gone by the 90s. Um, but there also, of course... Um, as part of that, and as, as um, a lot of workers lost their jobs and left town, um, a lot of poorer people moved into the community over the last two, three decades. And, you know, sometimes that was single mothers, sometimes that was unemployed people, sometimes that was refugees and migrants um, who were doing it very tough and who had no connection to the power station and, and were not at any point beneficiaries of largesse. Um, so, so for those people they sort of couldn't care less or they resented it or they just, it was something else that was going on. And a lot of them resented the fact that there was a lot of talk about how the power station was propping up the community or supporting the community and that kind of connection that they felt completely um, detached from. And the local Centrelink uh, employed more people than the power station. And the, the second biggest employer was the, the hospital because um, health, health problems are so so chronic there so so there's all this other stuff you know there's a really big kind of un underclass of, of people really struggling um under the shadow of the stacks yeah it's, it's a really interesting history to be reflecting on because um i mean you'd know often when we talk about energy transition and, and climate change mm. and and the future kind of makeup of um energy industries in australia there's this kind of mm. false dichotomy that's presented between jobs versus um you know sort of caring about the environment or do something, doing something to preserve the, the environment. But I mean, we mm -hmm. were talking with um, historian Judith Brett about this issue last week, and you know, she was pointing out mm. how there are comparatively quite um, a small number of jobs actually in the fossil fuels industry. And, and what's apparent from reading your book and the nature of how um, privatisation kind of impacted on not only mm. the number of people employed by Hazelwood, but how it was run as well. That you know, suddenly there were far fewer employees, but on much mm. um, bigger pay packets as well that's right like like extraordinarily big pay packets um to the point where people would probably be be shocked to hear the figures if they're not familiar with them you know like people i think the average wage when the power station shut the average wage was uh, i think it was 170,000. um the starting wage i think was 120 and you know senior management talking 200 300 grand salaries so the, the term I, I started thinking about was the idea of high-vis gentry, um, and I think it's it's so different from what you might get out of the Herald Sun, where you see pictures of, of coal miners with, with coal dust on their face, and the idea of these these workers, like the workers are working bloody hard, mm. but they also have multiple investment properties and jet skis and international holidays. You know, like it's a, it's a very different um, thing from what it, what it meant to be a, a worker in those industries in the in the seventies or something. Yeah, and, and so take us back to 2014 when you first began sort of really looking into Hazelwood. Um, I'm imagining, did you, did you start your investigation because of the actual mine fire? Is that, is that what took you down there? That's right, that's right, Dylan. So I was actually um, uh, enrolled at, in a PhD in journalism at Monash at the time, and my nominal subject was people's lived experiences of climate change. Mm. And what that meant in practice is I was waiting for really um, tangible events to occur and an extreme weather event or disaster is about as tangible as it gets. So 
so when the mine fire happened, I was like, well, this is this is intense, and um, it's it's a it's a fire that I could get close to without dying because it was it was it was stationary. It was just burning in the mine, um, so it wasn't like being idiotic and driving to a fire front and hoping to survive. Yeah. Um, so I drove down, uh, not knowing much about the region, and spent a night, a day and a night, sort of staying there. And unfortunately, and without meaning to, I picked a, a terribly polluted day where um, uh, fine particle levels spiked to sort of, I think it was about 30 or 40 times the recommended um, daily exposure. So it was, it was a particularly disastrous day, and there was just grey smoke everywhere, chunks of ash falling out of the sky, um, empty streets. Uh, the few people I saw were sort of um, shuffling in and out of cars wearing face masks. So it, it had quite a kind of zombie movie ambience in some ways. Mm. Um, and I I was, you know, talking to, to locals and I went to the pub and had dinner and, and the, I remember the lady at the pub sort of saying, oh, you know, we're meant to be wearing face masks, but that scares the customers away, so I'm just not wearing Interesting to be talking um, about that now in the middle of a global pandemic. I know, right? I know. Well, there was all this, there was all this face mask stuff happening mm. back in 2014, and I mean, I think the last, say, six or nine months in Australia, you need to just wear a face mask all the time now if you live in Australia, it yeah. seems, with the, the black summer and this. So, so I was really startled, I think, by my experiences. I got quite... Um, well, not, not not as sick as a lot of other people who actually lived there, but I got I got a minor case of um, carbon monoxide poisoning, I think, just from staying overnight. Wow. Like, I woke up with a really severe headache, and I was coughing up um, phlegm, and, and by that night I was coughing up phlegm with blood in it. Um, and the levels were very high, so I think in between the fine particles and the, the carbon monoxide, I got I got something. Um, but it made me aware that I, I was... Well, I went down there after it had been going for two weeks, and, and so... It, and it had been much far worse in the in the early days. So so I was quite aware that something quite severe was going, or you know, more than severe was going down. And and people weren't hadn't been evacuated. I mean, I think people who could, if they were rich, had left town. But a lot of people were just just living through it. Um, and so I just I, I, I had the feeling that something quite terrible was going on that wasn't really necessarily being managed very well by um, who, you know, whoever the powers that be that be that. Um, the EPA or the Department of Health or um, the emergency management services who maybe should have called some sort of evacuation or temporary relocation. Um, and so, yeah, but th- I wrote an article about this for, for New Matilda for the, for the website, yeah. um, talking about my experiences, and it just went super viral, um, which is <laughs> the first and only time that's happened to me. <laughs> uh, so I literally filed the story. Uh, um, I'd worked on it overnight, had a little nap, um, and when I woke up in the afternoon, it had been retweeted like 5,000 times or something ridiculous. Um, yeah. And so it, was, it clearly struck a nerve, and lots of people in the Latrobe Valley were, I think, uh, glad to see the severity of the conditions on the ground spelled out. So a lot of the um, reports did mention that there was a fire, but it was sort of a, you know, and, and this is what news does, it was a helicopter overview. It was like... Uh, a mine is on fire. It's been burning for two weeks. Um, there's lots of smoke, um, which is how you, God or, or someone in a helicopter might look at this event. Yeah. But to actually be on the street, and I literally saw an old man uh, get off the train and pass out on the pavement. Um, uh, you know, it could have been a coincidence, but it was pretty bad. And you know, I was in the in the op shop, hearing all these these old old people sort of coughing and, and talking about how terrible the conditions were in the house and. 
So I sort of I felt like it was it was far more disastrous than the sense I was getting when I was reading about it. Um, so I sort of started um, thinking about it more, and then after the article came out, I got contacted by a woman called Wendy Farmer, who was part of this new community organisation called Voice of the Valley, and she, she was such a great tweet. She literally tweeted me and said, thanks for the article. We need help, you know. Um, yeah. Please come please come to Spring Street. We're going to be having a rally on the steps of Parliament. And um, I was like, okay, sure, I'll come to the steps. And, and I, I went into the... Um, and it was a small but fairly astounding group of, of a couple of hundred people um, brought the train up from the Latrobe Valley who were sort of trying to get Dennis Napfine, who was the Premier at the time, trying to get his attention. And it was, it was amazing. It was very unlike the kind of protests I was used to from my student days. Like it was, um, there weren't too many hippies or dreadlocks or um, tie-dye or fisherman's pants. It was like, you know, it was dudes in flannel shirts, you know, heavy metal rocker. You know, housewives like it was a real kind of like gritty kind of working class vibe, and um, dudes in high vis coming from their factory jobs and stuff. And I was like, this is not the kind of protest I'm used to. And um, they were lovely to me; that they were very welcoming. And we actually all ended up getting sort of ushered inside um, Victorian Parliament and sort of given snacks um, <laughs> in the plush leather armchairs. And I remember one guy, Jason Gregg, was like looking at the food super suspiciously and wondering if it was poisoned and stuff. Had this sort of like that very kind of um, anti-authoritarian paranoia thing. Yeah. And, but then we went into the to the chambers and, and the health minister was giving all these really uh, unsatisfying answers um, to questions about conditions in, in the Latrobe Valley with the smoke and the risk and what what the government was doing about it. And... And all the, the the protesters started coughing, like doing these protest coughs, and to the point where it was so loud it actually, you know, disrupted Parliament. And it was it was awesome. It was, um, and then people were getting thrown out, and it was all very dramatic, and it was all very cool. And um, by the end of that, I was like, "This is amazing. This is my story. This is what I want to be doing." Yeah, your PhD um, all makes sense all of a sudden. Yeah, so I sort of ditched the broader climate change in Australia topic and went, this is it, this, is, this has everything. You know, it, it, has, it has drought and heat waves and, and bushfire and then it's got a brown coal mine poisoning poor people. You know, it, sort of, it has all of the elements of what, well, I think of, I guess, when you worry about climate change in Australia, all kind of like condensed into the symbol. That um, um, if, if you wrote about it, in a fictional context or for a movie about it, you might think it's a bit on the nose, the symbolism of it, right? Because, mm. you know, it's literally uh, uh, brown coal, which is the problem for, for carbon emissions on a global scale, but but watching it have such a dramatic effect on such a local scale was, was really startling. Yeah, well, there's so much in there in terms of sort of systemic inequality and um, and class issues and, and neglect of, you know, areas outside the regions as well, which sort of really comes through in, in the book. I should remind listeners, we're speaking mm. with Tom Joig all about his book, Hazelwood, which takes a really community-focused approach in um, telling stories around particularly the 2014 mine fire um, in the Latrobe Valley down there that burned for 45 days straight. And, I mean, the, the picture you paint of how the community um, experienced this is is really interesting and visceral. And it's, I mean, you mm. spoke a little bit about your kind of, you know, personal health complications from one day in mm. the region. Um, mm-hmm. But your experience kind of really isn't front and centre of this. It's, it's very much grounded yeah. in, it's not a first person story, for example. I mean, you're essentially yeah. quite absent from 
the book itself, yet you describe yeah. these scenes that um, that people relayed to you of, you know, a dog bleeding from all its orifices and, and losing fur and people's backyard chickens dropping dead, vegetables harvested yeah. from people's yards covered in this black, greasy substance um, and the mm. town's water supply being tarnished. I mean, it's really like mm. apocalyptic is, is, is a really mm. apt term to use, it, it feels like, in relation to how that was all experienced um, down there. Yes, yes, totally, Dylan. And look, I actually, because uh, I wrote a shorter book about this um, uh, for Penguin, for the Penguin Special series that, that came out in 2015. Um, and when I started uh, drafting that, I thought I'd be in there as a, as a character. Um, but there just there was so much else going on, and and when I was, and I was also very interested in, in more of that kind of testimony oral history approach to to writing that um people are probably familiar with like Svetlana Alexievich's work, her amazing Snowball book. Um, and, and so having, having started my interviews and, and getting these dramatic, incredible, you know, and, and quite horror show stories, I then suddenly appear as this minor character just driving his car and driving his Nissan Micro in from Melbourne, <laughs> getting a bit sick and leaving again. And, and it just felt like I wasn't needed, you know, like, mm. and, and a lot of that kind of, um, I think a lot of the great, Australian first-person journalism, you sort of need the author as a narrator to lead you through these complicated stories. Um, but because I had access to so many eyewitness reports, I just wanted to sort of put that front and centre and not get in the way of the stories, I guess. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I think, you know, you're talking about um, poor Julia Browell, who had mm. um, a tarnished water supply and then had to try and use that contaminated water to wash her vegetables that were also covered in coal ash because um, she's on the sickness benefit and she's got no money coming in and so she's literally eating kind of poisoned vegetables because um, that's all she's got and, and I feel like that was the kind of story that I really wanted to um, make sure came to represent more well so it's not just you know there's a lot of stuff about the firefighting and the earth moving and the and the power station but you know Julia Bell was just living in a very drafty weatherboard house in the in the ghettos of, of North northeast Morwell and um you know, literally waking up with a fine layer of ash covering her every every morning, um for for, for months. And um I I got the interviews with her and she was quite ill at the time. I mean she she was suffering from um oh, fibromyalgia, I think it was. So she she was sick beforehand, but I got the interviews and not that long afterwards in twenty seventeen she died. Um yeah. which was quite upsetting um but also made me really glad that i had got the got her story there you know because she and she some of it and, and i guess the, it really kind of pointed out to me hearing her stories the the way that poverty and ill health intersects with with disasters to make it that much worse so she had to do things like try to go to centrelink to get um you know, relocation funding for $500 as you go stay at her daughter's house. Um, but she nearly passed out of carbon monoxide poisoning um, on her way from the Centrelink office, yeah. you know, like, and, and found herself in the past where carbon monoxide pulled and literally fearing for her life that she wouldn't make, be able to make it out of the tunnel. Um, so so I think um, being able to, to provide a, a sense of how different, life experiences pre-disaster then lead to a very different disaster experience is a, is a very important part of 
uh, the, the work in the book. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it also charts the um, you know incredible lengths that, that that group Voices of the Valley went to when others as well, just to, mm. even to have the health consequences acknowledged by um, the government of the day. And there was an initial you know inquiry mm. into the mine fire that that didn't really have um, kind of the the public health impact as part of its terms of reference, which the the Andrews mm-hmm. government um, eventually you know um, re restarted the the mine fire inquiry mm. and did very much look into that and. and and establish mm. some kind of mechanisms for um, for how that could be addressed. But, I mean, this is a story that, yeah. that continues to roll on. Your book um, was kind of kept from the bookshelves, I think, for around a year due to kind of ongoing legal issues, I understand. And That's just, right. yeah. just last month, there was a the Supreme Court found, um, fined the operators of Hazelwood Power Station $1.9 million in charges relating to occupational health and safety Issues. I mean, kind of, kind of stepping back. What's your sense of of the level of fallout from not just the Hazelwood fire itself, but the neglect that was kind of allowed to fester in the way that um, that the power station and the mine wasn't really maintained, you know, as it should have been, um, and yeah. and what that can tell us about how you know we manage these things going forward as we look at the potential, you know, a new mine in the Galilee Basin, for example, and and what our relationship yeah. with coal fired power looks like. Right. Um, oh, you've, you've read the book well, John. There's a lot better <laughs> unpacked. But yeah, look, I think I think it has been really interesting. I mean, when you spend like five years of your life on a story, um, what it means kind of changes a lot over the years. Um, so, so for the first couple of years as I was writing the book, um, one of my focuses was trying to construct a strong argument about how dangerous the power station um, and the mine wasn't how it needs to be closed. Um, and then I realized I needed an end to my book, and that ended up... And then I was waiting to hear if it would close, and then it did close, and that became the end of my book. Um, but then that raises the question of what else is the book speaking to, or what are the lessons we can we can draw from it? And I, and I think uh, there are so many kind of um, structural patterns that repeat themselves. And so with, with Hazelwood, you have... Um, such a strong argument for why green tape's actually really good and important and red tape mm. too. You know, like regulations, oversight, monitoring of corporations is, is awesome. And when mm. you don't do it, it's the community that pays. Um, so, so there were decades of, of loosening of restrictions and, and negligence, uh, both, both by the state government and then by the private mine operators that led to make the... Um, the fire, the disaster, almost inevitable. And that's what a lot of the... Um, people in the, the mine for inquiry sort of found is that when you when you focus on cost cutting and you let the profit motive kind of like be your guiding light, um, of course they're not going to pay for extra fire maintenance staff. Of course they're going to rip out the sprinkler system and sell it for scrap metal, which is literally what happened, right? Rather mm. than updating the, the sprinklers, they, they sold that stuff for scrap. Of course they're not going to pay to cover the coal if they could just not do that. Um, and I think that raises a lot of questions, especially around the Galilee and Adani stuff, about uh, the assurances um, that that the public and the government are getting in terms of how safe the mine is going to be, both both um, in its operation but also at the, at the end of its life, you know. And I think there's already questions about how it's going to be rehabilitated and it hasn't even been dug yet. And, yeah. and it has the potential to contaminate the aquifer water systems up there, which, which are, you know, sort of, I think they flow all the way um, 
into South Australia from Queensland. I might be wrong about that, but they're sort of they're vast underwater systems and has potential to kind of completely ruin. Um, you know, millions of, of um, hectares of farmland up there, and uh, and I think the other thing is uh, that was really strong came through really strongly for me reading Hazelwood is that it, it's just a lie that um, 21st century coal is good for the community. <laughs> like mm. there will be a few really well paid workers and everyone else suffers, right? And and that's been the story in Western Australia as well in terms of that that vast inequality and it's like uh, often arguments about how you know 10,000 well-paid workers will then support 50,000 employees it's sort of based on it's literally based on a 1980s Reaganomics trickle-down economy thing and we know it doesn't work it's so obvious it didn't work in the Latrobe Valley because it was it already had some of the highest rates of poverty and inequality before the mine shut so was it, it something was, like that Hazelwood workers... Down. Yeah, sorry to jump in, but Hazelwood workers, I think I read, live on average, was it 15 years, um, uh, kind of die 15 years younger than the, the Victorian statewide population average or something like that? It was a remarkable figure. Yeah, yeah. Off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you, but it's definitely 10... Yeah, it might be 10 years, mm. but, you know, it's, it's huge, yeah. And, and people used to talk about how there was no such thing as an old uh, Hazelwood worker. It's like they would retire and they'd, they'd die shortly afterwards. Um but yeah, so I think I think um, it, it became really clear to me that you know it's very easy. You know, I spent most of my life in cities. Um, it's very easy if you're sort of you know working in the knowledge economy um, and all everything's kind of virtual or whatever to think about us living in a, a post-industrial world, post-industrial society. But it's only because we don't look at the vast infrastructure because we don't need to, and then it. It all just still can go go completely horribly wrong, and and our ability, I think, to to make stuff is still not matched by our ability to deal with it at end of life, and and I think that's true. I mean, climate change is the big example of that. We're really good at doing stuff like building factories and trains and power stations, but we're not good with dealing with the pollution at the other end of it, which it turns out is actually far more important than the stuff. Um, so that's a that's a big big problem and something that we sort of need to address at a, a really fundamental level. Um, the other, try, trying to step back from it, the other thing that was really quite um, striking and disturbing for me uh, with those terrible fires over the summer, um, and I actually, strangely enough, like moved to New Zealand in early December, so I, I missed the, the main fire season in, in the east coast of Australia and Melbourne, mm. but having spent you know, half a decade writing a book about how prolonged exposure to smoke makes people get sick and then die and then get cancer in years to come. And then I'm watching the news about, you know, these fires burning around Sydney for like literally months and, you know, Sydney's air quality spiking terribly, Canberra's air quality spiking terribly, it happens to Melbourne. And I was so disturbed and you know, and I, was, I started talking to public health experts and air pollution experts and epidemiologists, and they were all saying, "Yeah, hundreds, maybe thousands of people are going to die from this." Yeah. And that story was just not getting out there. And I, I tried to write a piece about this, and the the um, news places I sent it to were really kind of scared of that bold claim and um, didn't want to run it. And it wasn't until late March when the health experts found out that, sure enough, 445 people is, is the figure killed by smoke. Um, but it was obvious. It was so obvious that, you know, you can't just expose 8 million people to, like, literally months of unsafe health without hundreds of people dying in the moment and, and hundreds more 
dying in the future. And, you know, it's not easy. You can't just necessarily evacuate Sydney. Like, that's going to be a complete mess as well. Yeah. Um, but it was really disturbing to me that, and all of the, you know, if you're a professor of, of public health, you don't want to make a bold claim um, and then be proved wrong. But I feel like that caution uh, by scientists and journalists basically amounted to a form of denial. And it, it jeopardised public health and safety. Yeah. Because people weren't being warned that hundreds of people were definitely going to die, which is exactly what happened. Well, we saw in the case um, of Hazelwood as well, it was a community who were gathering data around, you know, whether there was a spike in deaths over the period um, of mm. the mine fire itself. It was them sort of leading that. And it, it's interesting too to be, right. you know, in this context of the coronavirus pandemic where there kind of is, um, it's become almost normalised that there's a, mm. you know, we can um, have some kind of figure in mind of how many lives might have been saved by taking one mm. policy approach compared to another. So I wonder whether, mm. you know, as, as a, a kind of society, those types of relationships between, you know, whether having a, a coal-fired power station or allowing for, for bushfires to, um, you know, mm. come in, in the sort of the, the way they did at the start of this year will have yeah. a, a direct um, relationship to how many people get sick and die from that. Yes, look, look I think so. I mean, I feel like... I mean, the coronavirus has changed everything. That's a that's a platitude. Um, but I think one of the things that was really remarkable, um, say, looking at the Australian situation or the New Zealand situation for that matter, is that governments and societies were willing to pull the handbrake on and basically stop everything to save lives. And in practice, the lives we're saving are the lives of older people, right? It's, mm. it's people in the high-risk group, 70s, 80s, 90s, baby boomers and a bit older. And, and we were willing to, like, plunge ourselves into this terrible, you know, Great Depression, you know, decimate the art sector to save the lives of, of the old people. Um, and I think the question then becomes, like, if we now realise that, that governments can turn on a dime um, when faced with crises, how... how, how can we do it again? Can we do it for climate change? Can we do it for the next disaster? Because um, we just did it, you know. Um, but it is a tricky one because um, climate change isn't going away. You know, even if we throw everything at it, there are still going to be these, these worsening yeah. bushfires. So, so it becomes really tricky um, trying to work out what to do. And, and if, if we end up in a situation where there is another... Well, because there, be, there will be another fire as bad mm. as, as last summer. It might not be in six months' time. It might be in... 18 months time but you know we, we know it's going to happen again and but the question of, of how to deal with it is still a big question you know it's like do you just provide everyone with oxygen tanks you know like does everyone relocate to, to cans because that's where it's not burning or or do we just start to accept as a society that we'll lose thousands of people a year and that's just how it is um but I think at least having to think about those issues in slightly more bald and brutal terms, which I think in a way that the coronavirus thinking um, has made us do it and it might permeate other things. It, it might hopefully lead to people actually pushing back and going, no, this is a terrible policy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we need to treat things very differently from how we have been. Yeah, well, your book also prompts us to think about these things in um, in, in different terms to the way that, you know, we're, we're generally presented with um, issues around energy transition and climate change, um, you know, putting mm. the emphasis right on the human costs of these things and how that kind of um, poverty and, and systemic inequality is magnified in particular areas. Mm 
barriers by the type of neglect we saw um, through the, the kind of Hazelwood story. I've kept you well over time and yeah. I do need to, to move on. I'll have to leave it there. But um, thanks so much for, for coming back on the show. It's um, it's a book I'd recommend uh, to anyone, really. It's, it's beautifully written. It's a very easy read, but um, very challenging subject matter as well. So congrats on um, finally having it available in bookstores and, um, and best of luck thanks, with everything Dylan. over in New Zealand. Thank you so much, Dylan. Have a great day. You too. Cheers. Tom Doig, the author of the book Hazelwood, which um, charts the community's response to that mine fire disaster back in 2014 that saw um, the fire burn for 45 days straight and have really disastrous consequences for the community down there. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.